The following audio is from a sermon series for the season of Advent entitled Songs for the Savior. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. A week or so ago, my daughter, Zoe, uh, I kind of feel bad for my kids. They get thrown into my sermons quite a bit. My daughter, Zoe, uh, I asked her at dinner time. At dinner time, we set up our Advent candle, and we, 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 this, we, have a lot of our faith, we have a lot of faith conversations. And I asked her, I said, Zoe, and my kids know if I'm asking one kid, everybody else has to be quiet. So I say, Zoe, what's Christmas all about? And Javin, he starts squirming. Like he, he knows he's got the right answer, and he's fighting to keep from blurting it out. And Zoe's face lights up, and she just, she, she blurts out really fast, presents. Javin is my little firstborn theologian. He rolls his eyes, quickly informs everyone at the table that Christmas is about Jesus. It's his birthday, Zoe. And what then followed was this whole good five-minute conversation on why on our birthdays we get presents, but then on Jesus' birthday, everybody gets presents. And Zoe, which led my daughter to rightly conclude that Christmas is indeed better than birthdays because more presents are involved. So, so who was right? Like, Javin, Christmas is about Jesus. Or Zoe, Christmas is about presents. Now, many people kind of decry the giving of gifts at Christmas. Right? We've got a whole book, Scrooge, right? The book written about it, kind of. Songs we sing about it, thoughts that we've got. Um, we hear a lot of these days about the commercialization of Christmas. And we're constantly being reminded to not forget that Jesus is the reason for the, (laughs) yes, and what isn't. So what we're saying there is Jesus is the reason for the season and presents aren't, right? That's kind of what's being said. So first, let me give you this caveat before I get into this. Consumerism is a huge problem in our society. Consumerism is what, this is what it is. It's a big word. What does that mean? Consumerism is trying to create an identity. Uh, It's to find your purpose in life, your fulfillment in life, through an ever-increasing consumption of goods and services. Okay? You will be happy once you get that, once you do that, once you become that, once you go there. Okay, the acquisition of things is going to make me into a better human. It's going to find, I mean, this is what marketing and really is built upon, right? You're going to be happy once you get our product, okay? Now, this is the religion of our day. The more you have, the more experiences you can amass, the Facebook has one thing. It's like, who can have the best vacation, right? Who can have the best vacation? Whether it's the islands or whether it's water slides, whatever it is, like that's part of it. Like let's tell, show the world how awesome our vacations are. Now, they're all lies. I'm just going to tell you, right? You get the kid to pose in front of Mickey Mouse, click, but nobody gets the, the meltdown that happens three hours later, right? You don't take a picture of that one. Right, where after six suckers and three hot dogs, they're having a complete meltdown on the pavement, and you're dragging them home, swearing you'll never do it again. Right? Nobody has that picture up. 
right? But we get this mentality. The better vacations, the, 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 the better clothes, the better cars, the better coffee, right? The greater your happiness will be. This is the promise of consumerism. And many of us have bought into that. It, this consumeristic mentality has even affected many, if not most, churches in our society. People, all of us, we sometimes want to attend the church that most resembles Walmart or Target, or Target, actually. Uh, for the consumer of goods, right, the best church is, is the one-stop shop for the whole family. Best church has the biggest buildings, the flashiest kids' ministry, the loudest youth ministries, the best coffee in the lobby. While mom and jo- dad, well, mom and dad get to enjoy a positive, encouraging 30-minute pep talk with a little Bible thrown in to make it sound almost biblical, right? Now, I'm not against any of those things. I'm not against good coffee. I'm not against kids' ministries. I'm not against youth ministries. I- I'm against one thing, the almost biblical sermon. I am against that one, okay? There's a place for quality programming. There's a place for good coffee. We do all those things here at Sacred City. But what consumerism does is it makes the church into a provider of services, religious goods and services, okay? Instead of a family of missionary servants on mission for the glory of God and the good of the city, okay? It's a place that you go to instead of a people that you belong to on a mission, Right? Consumerism has affected the church. We just, I go to church on Sunday. Instead of, I'm a part of the people of God on a mission from God for the good and for His good, for our good, for His glory, and for the good of our city. Big change. So, that's my caveat. All right, before I jump into everything this morning, consumerism is indeed a real threat to our souls, our churches, and our families, and we have to fight against it. But it's a mark of immaturity to see sin in something or to see the potential for danger in something and then to say, oh, throw it away, right? Just throw it all away. Thankfully, when God saw us with a lot of sin in us, he didn't just throw us away, right? He did something different. He came down and he redeemed us. So I'm going to show you, really, there's three approaches when, you, when you're talking about culture, when you're talking about, you know, the presence of sin, that you can reject something, outright reject it. Some things need to be rejected, okay? You can just wholeheartedly accept things. There's some things in our culture that we can wholeheartedly accept. Very few of those things, probably, that we can wholeheartedly reject. But most things in our culture are in the middle. They're not bad, and they're not just good on their own, but they, they're in the middle there, and they need to be redeemed, Okay? They need to be redeemed. They need to be worked through. and apply the, You have to apply the gospel to them. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, think about this. I think on one level we kind of get this idea that, okay, just because there's something, the potential for bad in things, we shouldn't just throw everything away. Right? Do we really, since consumerism is, a, consumerism is such a problem, do we just stop giving gifts? Right? Or do we just give really bad gifts to our presents, right? Or to our kids, Right? I think we kind of get this, but let me, let me use this illustration. One of the most dangerous things we do every day, most of us every day, is strap ourselves into a large metal bullet and head to work at 70 miles per hour. Okay, We've got a pretty high chance of being injured or killed inside of this metal contraption that we call a vehicle. Right? Everyone has a pretty good chance of that, but very few of us 
assess the danger there, and then conclude to never, okay, I'm never getting in the car again. Danger's too great, potential for danger, potential for hazard, problems could arise. I'm walking. I'm walking it from now on. Right? Very few of us do that. We don't just throw it out. To never drive a car again because it's dangerous would be, to use another illustration, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right? But this is often how religious people respond to seeing danger in things. And this is where we're going to see the difference between moralism and religion and the gospel. See, a moralistic response is to throw the baby out with the baby wa- ba- bath water, <laughs> baby water. A moralistic response is to see something bad or see a potential for bad and to throw the whole thing out, okay, to say that's bad and just classify it and reject it. Now, we talk a lot about, at Sacred City about idolatry and what is idolatry and the essence of sin is idolatry, worshiping something uh, more than God or Ascribing more of my life and value and emotions to something other than God. Idolatry is when a good thing becomes a God thing. Something becomes more important to me and my identity than God himself. That thing defines me and kind of determines my emotional responses more than God does. But what I've seen over the years is that young believers or immature believers or legalistic Christians or moralistic Christians, when they begin to see idolatry in something, they just want to throw it away. Okay, get rid of it. Now, that sounds commendable. Shouldn't we want to throw our idols away? Well, yes, kind of, but let me, let me build it out. See, what it actually does, if that's your only response, is it leads us to this kind of isolationistic Religion, where we circle up the wagons, right? And we try to keep the bad guys out there and the good guys in here. And, it, and we totally forget that where's the problem of sin? Where does sin lie? It's not out there. It's in here, right? So circling up the wagons, you're, you're you know, isolating yourself and your sin in its own little comfort zone here, Okay? So what happens when we do that? What happens when we see the potential for sin in something or even sin in something or even idolatry in something and then we just kind of throw it away? Well, what happens is we reject some things that God calls good in his word. God says this is good. Well, we throw those things out and we reject those good things that God has given us to enjoy for his glory and our good. We reject them because they can potentially become too important to us. Now, what are some of those things? Many of you know that uh, no one does CrossFit and remains silent about it, okay? It's just out there, right? You cannot do it. It's the opposite of Fight Club. If you do it, you have to talk about it, okay? Now, here's the deal. Many people say, well, CrossFit is an idol. CrossFit is an idol, okay? So then, therefore, CrossFit is bad. That's just absolute religion. That's absolutely moralism. CrossFit is about getting fit, about using the gifts that God has given us for his good, for our good, for his glory. Now, can CrossFit become an idol where it becomes too more? Absolutely. But it's actually not CrossFit that's the idol. It's probably vanity, right? I enjoy looking at myself, right, with my shirt off, right? It's probably something like that. It's probably um, comparing myself to others, pride. I want to be better than other people, okay? But here's the deal. Listen, listen, listen. 
You see what we just did? If CrossFit is bad and I throw it out, right, all this wicked heart of mine is going to do, if I go, okay, I can never CrossFit again because I'm proud and, I, and I'm vain, I'm going to go do something else. Well, guess what? That other thing will be affected by my vanity and my pride, whatever it is. So this, the real sin under the sin is following with me wherever I go, Right? It could be athletics, it could be your golf game, it could be your bank account. Pride and vanity go with you wherever you go. So getting rid of CrossFit does nothing for you. It doesn't help your problem at all. You're still a sinner, and now you're not even being reminded of it, right? The good thing, well, I won't get into that, okay? Now, food. Oh, Justin, don't go here. Not at the holidays. Not at the holidays. Many people, (laughs) I don't even want to go there. Listen, gluten does a body good. That's all I'm going to say, all right, for most of us, okay? No. Scripture does say, though, and I mean, I don't want to get into this too much, but, but food is given by God as a gift to us to glorify God. And all the cultures, right? Thank God for Mexican food. Thank God for Thai food, right? Thank God for all the different cultures, I love having a multicultural missional community because I get stuff that I don't even know what it is, but I'm going to eat it, and most of the time it's good, Right? God gives us good gifts. Now, you can, you, if you want to eat like a rabbit, you can eat like a rabbit, all right? But you're rejecting some of the good things that God's given us in moderation, okay? And those things can be taken either way. Now, what about alcohol? Alcohol is the same way. Alcohol is, is the potential for bad in alcohol. Absolutely, there's potential in bad, just like food. Overeating, gluttony, that's a sin. Can we, I mean, do we talk about that in the church very often, right? We, we probably don't. We don't, here's what Psalm, I think it's 114, says. Wine was given by God to gladden the heart of man. A gift given by God to gladden the heart of man. In moderation, it's a good gift for the glory of God. Out of moderation, it's a sin. You can throw it away. You want to throw it away? Fine. You're rejecting a good gift that God has given you. All right? Now, does it need to be used with wisdom? Does it need to be used in moderation? Absolutely, as with all things. But you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Or you're rejecting a good gift. It's, it's really a, a response of immaturity. And it's okay that it's, you know, we can, we can say that, you know, that you're immature. Or scripture uses other terms like the weaker brother. That's okay. I mean, it's okay to be immature for a season, right? Like, our kids, driving is dangerous. The potential to drive. So we don't let our kids do it, right? We say, grow up. You've got to be at least 16. And most parents are like, I mean, I wish it was like 21 or 22, or, right? We let them get at least to their 16. Here's the problem. If, I, if my only response is to reject questionable things in the culture, that's only going to work for a while. It's immature. It's not going to work for very long. Eventually, we have to grow up. See, cars are dangerous so kids can't drive. That's good. But when they grow up, they can. Kids can't drink alcohol, right? But when they grow up, they can. As we grow in the Lord, we need to learn learn how to use these good gifts from God without them ruling us or ruining us because eventually you're going to get to something that you can't just throw away. What do I mean by that? Many people, many of us, idolize our spouse or kids. Oops. Right? You get a good husband, you get a good wife, 
You can love them and care for them more than you can love God. You get kids, and it's like almost natural to love your kids more than you love God. It's a, it's a battle, right? That connection that happens between a mom and her baby and her, or a father and her, his son. It's, it's a connection that happens. Now, this is a huge problem for an immature person. If my only response was throw things away, get rid of anything questionable, what do I do now when I'm tempted to worship my spouse or I'm tempted to worship my kid? That didn't work. See, this is when a mature response is required. It's required of us to grow up. You've got to learn how to love God more than you love your wife and kids. And it's not an easy thing. But Jesus said it would be required of us. Jesus said in his very politically correct very gentle, very kind response. You got to hate your mom and hate your kids, right? Like that's basically, that's how he said it. Comparison, our love for God should be so overwhelmingly, abundantly above our love for our kids and our love for our wife that it look, our love for our family looks like hate compared to our love for God, right? That's, that's what Jesus said. Now, I want you to think about this. See, how do we... Wa- This is what maturity is. Maturity, growing up in Christ, is wading through the danger zone. It's wading through the possibility and the potential for falling off the horse on either side, right? And we've got to grow up and we've got to be able to deal with these things. Listen, TV shows, you can stop watching them. Music, you can stop listening to. Video games, you can stop playing. Listen, if you grew up in a legalistic church, you know you've bought the same CD two or three times. Right? Youth ministry, camp, you threw them all away. Nine months later, you bought it again. Next camp, you threw them all away. Three months later, you bought it again. Right? Moralistic, legalistic response. But it's, it is okay sometimes for immature, for being immature, right? Like that's what has to happen. Sometimes you have to get rid of your music. Sometimes you have to stop watching certain things. Sometimes you have to, but it's not your, if it's your only tool in your tool bag, you're going to remain a child forever. You can throw those things out. You can stop playing video games, right? You can stop drinking alcohol. But eventually, you're going to get down into something that you can't just give up. And that's where it's going to require you to grow up in the truth of the gospel. The, listen, this is, a, I, this is just crazy. In the 12th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, I know you guys are probably reading it this week. The prophet says this statement. And he's, he's, he's crying out to God about the wickedness of God's people. And he's frustrated. The society's dark all around him. He probably overwhelmingly had the feeling of the bad guys are coming. The culture's winning. We're losing the culture war, right? God's people are being pulled off into Babylon, the holy ones are being taken over, the church is being destroyed. Isaiah had this feeling, okay? And he's crying out to God, and he's kind of really just kind of freaking out to God. And God speaks to him in this crazy sentence. And it's just, if you think about it, it's cool. And he says this, God says in chapter 12, if you're so worn out from running with men, trying to keep up with people, trying to, you know, all the stuff he sees around him, if you're so worn out from running with men, how will you ever run with the horses? 
Now, I'm sure, Jer- I, you know, right, Jeremiah is not thinking like, oh, I've really been wanting to go run with the horses, right? But what God is trying to say, what God is saying, God is telling Jeremiah, it's time to grow up. I've got big plans for you. I want you to be able to keep pace with the horses, and that's going to mean you have to get stronger. So what he's saying is really, your level of leadership is right here, and it's, you're worn out right now. I'm about to take it up here. You're tired from running with men? What are you going to do when you've got to run with horses? What are you going to do? I want you to grow up, Jeremiah. I want you to step up in your leadership. I want you to rise up, right? I want you to be able to run with horses. Now, what does that really mean? Later on, in that same book, God's people do get carried off, right, into bondage, into Babylon, and God tells him what he meant by running with the horses. God clarifies it for him. And this is what he says in chapter 29. Listen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, that's clarification. Our bad, the bad guys didn't win. God did this. You hear that? The bad guys didn't win. God did this. I have taken my people into Babylon for, I've let other nations conquer us for a reason. I've let them go into Babylon. Now listen to this. What do we, here's a, what do we expect God to say? Okay, you're going to Babylon. It's a pagan nation. There's going to be all kind of bad stuff there, right? They're going to have idols everywhere. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to form a counter-cultural society. I want you to grow beards to your knees. I want the ladies to wear dresses all the way to the floor. I want you guys to be the most boring people in the whole nation. Then everybody will look at you and go, we, have, we do want to be like that at all, right? <laughs> that looks really bad, right? Eat nothing but stale bread and drink water. We want you to form this little convent of people in this nation. This is a moralistic response that we might possibly expect. Listen to what he says to do. Verse 5. This is what I want you to do. Build houses. We're talking about in Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Okay. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Okay. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Normal life. Go live in the culture. Go live in the city normally. Now listen to this. But, here's what's going to set you apart. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of the city, this pagan city, where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its we- in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What is God saying? God's saying, I've actually let this other nation overtake you so you could be a missionary. So you could be in this culture but not of this culture so you can love God and serve this culture. So you can lay your lives down for this culture. So you could seek its welfare and pray to the Lord for this culture. So you could be, as Jesus later says, salt and light in the culture. By doing what? 
by building houses and living in them, by planting gardens and eating the fruit, by making babies, praise the Lord, and getting married and all these things, right? And by witnessing to the goodness and the grace of God. So I know this has been a long way, right? We're, we're, we're getting around to it. I could spend a whole day on this text right here. So in our discussion here, who was right, Javin or Zoe? Is, is Christmas about presents or is it about Jesus? I think we see from our texts, actually, today, it's about both. Christmas is about giving and gifts. When the wise men, right, the magi, hear about the birth of Jesus, this king, what do they do? They grab their treasures. They grab their good gifts, the best things that they own, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Everybody knows what gold is. The other ones are like spices and aloe and ointments or expensive things, right? They grab these things. and They take this two-year two trek to find Jesus. They grab their gifts, and they go bring them to Jesus. They started it, didn't they? Why do we give good gifts at Christmas? Wise men started it. Well, technically not, actually. Those consumeristic magi. See, actually what 2 Corinthians shows us, the magi didn't start it, the wise men didn't start it, God did, right? 2 Corinthians says, Jesus, though rich, Jesus, though rich, wealthy, Jesus became poor so that we, though poor, could be made rich. Think about that. That sounds a lot like Christmas to me. Parents, though rich, become poor so that their kids, though poor, might become rich. It's consumeristic, right? But again, can it be absolutely sure? Yes. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Why do we give good gifts at Christmas? Because God gave his most precious gift to us. He bankrupt heaven to send Jesus down to us. So our response to receiving this gift is natural. It's a response. It's a reaction. It's a reflex. Right? We've been given. We've received the generosity of God. And now we give gifts generously to those we love. We've received, so we give. That's an evidence, a response, or a reflex of grace. And obviously, this is not just something we do at Christmas time. It's, it's supposed to be. And it is indeed, if you get the gospel, it's the default mode of the Christian's heart. We've been given, so we give. It's the default mode. We have been so blessed, so filled, so extravagantly made rich in Jesus that we willingly and graciously want to give and to bless others. If you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to 2 Corinthians 8. We're going to take a look at this, and we're going to get into it just a little bit more. And actually, I want you to start, we're going to start with verse 1. Because it's cool, it's crazy. In the context of what we're reading today, 2 Corinthians 8, I'm waiting, I can see you, we're flipping. There's Bibles in the aisles, and there's apps on your phone. If we can pull it up on the screen, 2 Corinthians 8, if we have it, verse 1, I'm going to start in verse 1. Okay, we don't have it, that's all right. That's my fault. Um, The context that we're reading in 2 Corinthians 8 is very similar to our context this morning. It's a unique context. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul, this is what Paul's doing in this context. The Apostle Paul is taking up a special offering for a group of believers that are suffering in Jerusalem. Okay? So the Corinthians, they're in Corinth, right? Jerusalem's, they're separate, two different cultures. But Paul is taking up a special offering in Corinth to serve those in Jerusalem. Okay? Now listen, we just came out of nine or ten months studying 1 Corinthians, right? Studying the church in Corinth. Do we remember these Corinthians, right? The Corinthians uh, were not your ideal Christians, right? They're not the guys you want to bring up on stage necessarily. Even though Paul said that they are sanctified and they are, they are in Christ and they are forgiven and they were, they were eternally secure, he then goes on to say what? You're selfish. You are arguing over stupid things. You're taking each other to court. You're lifting up men and their leadership. Um, you inst- <laughs> we had people coming, and they would get drunk at the communion table, right? They're taking good gifts that God has given them, and they're using them in inappropriate ways, right? But, God- but what does Paul do? Paul never says, stop, just straight up, you know, and issues like that. Stop doing it. He goes back to the gospel first, right? He goes back to the gospel. Now, how... And there's been some repentance going on in 2 Corinthians. There's been some repentance. But how is Paul going to address this issue of giving? They're they're rich. They're wealthy compared to the Jerusalem church. How is he going to inspire them to give up their wealth, to give up to help these suffering Christians? Let's look and see how he's going to do that. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God. Look at this. That has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The grace of God that has been given. First off, I want you to see that word grace there is literally talking about money. He's talking about a financial offering that's been given by this other church in Macedonia. So here's verse one, Here's step one that he does. He's comparing them to a Macedonian church. He's showing them an example of generosity that's commendable from a church that's in Macedonia, okay? The grace of God that's been given in Macedonia. For look at this, how did Macedonian Christians respond to this offering? Look, look, verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, many of us might be in a severe test of affliction today. We might have finance, we might have bills overwhelming us, we might be sick in our bodies, we might be having broken relationships and broken marriages. Listen, for in a severe test of affliction, their, this is just weird, their abundance of joy Do you see this? Hold on. Simultaneously being overwhelmed with affliction and having great joy. There's a joy that's deeper than anything circumstantial that can be had through the grace found in the gospel. Let's keep reading. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has done what? It's overflowed in a wealth of what? Generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the grace or favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Do you see what's going on here? In Macedonia, Paul goes, Paul's not like me, who gets a little funny about money, right? Paul goes, all right, guys, we're taking a special offering for Jerusalem. And these people that are in a, a test of affliction, severely impoverished, in a very difficult situation, they go, yes, let us give, let us give, let us give. Beyond their means, they're overjoyed by the grace they've received from Jesus. And they respond by saying, 
we want to give, and we want to give more, and we want to bless them, right? It's a gift of grace. It's a response of grace. Now, secondly, what else does he do? I want you to look at verse 7. He says this, to speaking to the Corinthians. But as you excel in everything, okay, so he's saying, hey, it's kind of the positive approach here. He's saying, hey, guys, you're, rock, you're knocking it out of the park. You've been given all kind of gifts by the grace of God, through the Spirit of God. You're excelling in what? In faith. That's great. You're excelling in speech. We know they love the, be, to be, uh, they, they promoted the orators in Corinth. They love to debate, right? You're, you're, so you're excelling in faith. You're excelling in speech. You're excelling in knowledge. Praise God for that. In all earnestness, that's great. You're, you're, you're focused, you're moving ahead, right? And in our love for you, look at this. See that you excel in this act of grace also. So what is he saying? Paul's saying here, you're smart, you're gifted, you're serving, you have faith, you have love. These are great things, but it can't stop there. The the grace you've been given must go farther to give to others. You must let the generosity of God not stop with you, but go through you and be generous to others. Excel in this grace, this gift of giving. Excel in this gift also. And then thirdly, what does he do? Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, For your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, what does it mean here that Jesus was rich? It means he is God. Everything that God possesses in and of himself, Jesus possessed. Eternally happy. Right? Eternally rich. Eternally fulfilled. And Jesus becomes poor. He, and as one song we sang today, he lays his glory by. Tim Keller says his glory is his glamour. He lays his glamour by. And he comes as a normal man, and he's born humbly in a manger. Though rich, becomes poor. Listen to this. This is a quote I read in my studies this week. It doesn't have an It was an unknown author, so. He who is the bread of life began his ministry hungering. He who is the water of life ended his ministry thirsty. Christ hungered as a man, yet fed the multitudes as God. He was weary, yet he is our rest. He prayed, yet he hears prayers. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver, yet he redeemed sinners. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, yet he is the good shepherd. He died, and by dying, destroyed death. What does it mean that Jesus became poor so that we could become rich? Now, let me just put a little blanket statement in here, and that's this. He's not talking about monetarily. And prosperity preachers who preach a false gospel say that by giving of your resources, he will make you millionaires. There's guys on TV right now that says if Jesus came to earth today, he'd drive a jag. Foolishness, right? I'd like a few minutes in a quiet room with them with no windows or microphones. It's heresy. It's absolute heresy. What's he saying? 
Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, we're spiritually bankrupt, right? Only the poor get the kingdom. Only those who admit, I have nothing to offer. I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't be good enough. I can't even get rid of enough bad things in my life to be good enough with God. I'm spiritually bankrupt, and I need the riches of God. I need the riches of Christ. What are the riches? Everything that God is in Jesus Christ. We talked about last week how Jesus was like a, his flesh was a veil where we can look at Jesus and see the glory of God. No one can look at the glory in God and live, but we can look at Jesus and see the glory of God because of the veil. And everything that's good about God that was in Jesus, I get through faith in Christ by grace. His righteousness What does that mean? Everybody's aware in their mind of God having a report card on them. You've been in the church a while. You've heard the stories about getting to heaven and God pulling out the big file. Right? And he's got every deed you've ever done in that file. And he can go through it and he can name date and time. You lied here. You gossiped here. You were fearful here. You stole this. Right? And you think about that. And then we got Jesus' file cabinet up there in heaven. And there's not one bad thing in it. Everything's perfect. And this is what God does. God peels the name Justin Dean off of this filing cabinet. And he puts the name Justin Dean on Jesus' file cabinet. And I, everything that Jesus Christ was, I now am. I might get to heaven and Jesus says, man, I, when you walked on water, or God says, when you walked on water, that was pretty impressive. Oh, I kind of did that in Jesus, didn't I? His righteousness is mine. His perfection is mine. It's yours through grace by faith. That's what it means to receive the riches of God. Well, I keep saying by faith. Ephesians 2 says we're saved by grace. You are saved through faith. It's all a gift of God, right? What is faith? Faith is kind of like, think of it like this. It's a garden hose. Faith is a garden hose. Through it flows the grace of God. Through it flows the riches of Christ. Through it flows salvation. It's like a garden hose. It's all a gift. All our part is to do, all all our part is to receive it. We receive the gift, right? We open the gift and we respond and we worship Jesus and marvel at his grace. But here, what we're seeing here is the generosity of God. The grace of God doesn't just, it's not meant to end on us. We're not just supposed to take it. C.S. Lewis talks about when we receive a gift, we actually, it's not complete. The gift isn't completed until we rejoice in it. So if you go over to somebody's house and they make a brilliant cake, you can eat that cake and walk away. And, And something's broken there. Something's missing, unless it's a bad cake. Just be quiet about that one. But if it's a good cake, right? If it's a good cake, It hasn't been fully enjoyed until you go, this is an amazing cake, right? And the people around you get to go, really? And the person that made it gets to go, thanks, right? The enjoyment of the gift and the declaration of that enjoyment kind of fulfills the the gift, right? Fulfills it in a sense. This is why we give great gifts at Christmas. It kind of fulfills the grace that we've been given, right? God's poured the grace on us, and it's meant to flow through us and pour out into a great generosity to others. We've received so much from a gracious and generous God that we love to give good gifts. But 
when we receive that generosity and then we fail to be generous in return, it kinks the hose. Right? When we receive grace and we don't want to dispel grace, it kinks the hose. And it it doesn't allow us to complete the circle that's meant to be had. We're supposed to receive it. We're supposed to give it to others. We're supposed to give glory to God in the process. As we give to others, they get to glorify God who gives good gifts. Right? When we just receive, we kink the hose. And when I kink the hose, this is what happens in your own soul. You think, well, it's just about other people and God. No. When you kink the hose, you begin to lose sight of the grace of God. You You start saying, you know what? I deserve this. I've actually been reading my Bible. I'm like 60% through my Bible reading plan. I'm nailing it. Right? I don't drink anymore. I haven't watched that kind of show anymore. I stopped playing video games. I've stopped doing this and I've stopped doing that. I'm actually a pretty good person. And you kink the hose on the grace of God. You forget your spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus had a lot of illustrations about that. And what is it doing? Ultimately, the question is, in our song today, you're forgetting what child is this? Because if you really realize who Jesus is and what he came to do and how he came to do it for you, Anything he asks, as he pours it into your life, you'll be willing to let go of it. You'll be willing to, be, to let that faith be like that garden hose and just flow right through you. Even your resources, that he gives you them so that you can prove to yourself and the world that those things are not your God and you release them and you give them to others and you're generous. You receive the generosity of God and you push that generosity out. Now, here's a question that always comes up. But... Justin, if I give financially, sacrificially, right, at Christmas time or whenever, if I give sacrificially, that's just irresponsible. I might not have enough in the future. If I give too much now, then in the future, I might need help myself. That's, just, that's irresponsible. Now, look at, look at verse 14. Because I'm going to just say, that's exactly what Paul says, except he uses it for a reason to give. Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, let's start with 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. So he's saying the purpose isn't to put a weight on you to make you give. It's a matter of fairness. Now, that is a very interesting word coming from the apostle. Look, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. So God has given you resources now. The Jerusalem are in a hard time. Your abundance should supply their need. Now look at this. So that their abundance may supply your need. That there may be fairness. Now that is just interesting to me. God's saying, or Paul here is saying, that he wants them to give And then in the future, when the Jerusalem church is thriving and maybe they're hurting, that now it can be reciprocated to them. He's saying, yeah, that's what I want. I want you to feel like a giver today and feel like a receiver in the future. Now, many of us, if we're wealthy, if you've got a good education, you've got a good job, we feel like a giver a lot, right? 
But we usually don't ever give enough where in the future or sometimes we might feel like a receiver. And I'm going to say, you've probably kinked the hose there because you've forgotten what it feels like to receive grace. It's hard if you're a giver and you love to serve and you love to make dinner and you love to be thoughtful and send cards and you love to be the giver. It's, it's hard to be a receiver. Just lose your job. Get sick. Givers are terrible when they're sick. Givers are the ones that make everybody else sick because they go to work sick. Right? They can't handle being on the couch doing nothing, so they go to work sick and they get everybody else sick. Right? Givers are, and Paul's saying, I want you to learn to be a receiver. How generous has God been to you? Let me ask you this. How generous this year? Missional communities have grown. People have come to faith. People have been baptized. Families have been saved. I mean, how generous has God been to you this year? Does your giving respond? Does your generosity correlate? Now listen, I'm not talking about numbers or I'm not talking about amount. Let me say that. I'm not talking about the amount because we can, we're never paying God back. We can't pay God back. It's grace flowing through us. There will never be amount You could empty your bank account today. It won't pay for your salvation. It won't make God happy with you. It's none of those things, right? But it's it's the amount of joy. I'm thinking about your joy in giving, your eagerness, your willingness to let go of a significant percentage of the money God has entrusted you, right? Where are you at there? Think about it. Oh, it's getting awkward in here. Like it. Think about it. So you guys think I'm like arrogant and I'm just asking for your money? Casey told me, if you think I'm asking for your money, if you're here and you're like, you know what, every time I'm here they take offerings. Uh, Casey told me to remind everybody, welcome back, because it's been two years, okay, since I've, we've taken an offering in a, in a gathering. They, I don't like talking about it. The reason I can talk about it with a little bit of boldness today is because for three weeks I've known this is coming and I've had to do all the work in my own heart, okay? I've had to take what Jesus says about money, what Paul says about money, and I've had to work it into my own heart. And it's hard because we are in a consumeristic society. It's very difficult to, to let go and to keep my eyes on the glory of Jesus. It's really, really hard. So, have you kinked, have you kinked the hose on the grace of God? Receiver, not a giver. Giver, not a receiver. Our generosity is meant to spill over onto others so other people can know. What child is this? Who is Jesus? What has he done? There's people in Illinois right now who don't know Jesus. There's people in this congregation. The only reason you know Jesus is because God called us to plant this church three years ago. So you were far from God and you met somebody and you joined a missional community and you heard about the gospel and you heard about the grace of God. You saw what child is this and you responded. And today you're full and you're rich in Christ because of somebody else's generosity. And now our opportunity is to do the same thing in Illinois, to plant a church in 2015 or 16 or whenever God does it this next year, whatever stage we'll be at to see another gospel-centered church in Illinois for the glory of God and for the good of that city. We don't want to kink the hose. It's flowed to us. Let it flow through us. I get, okay. Now, we get it, right? We give good gifts to our kids at Christmas. 
this is what we do need to remind. We need to let them know why we're giving our good gifts to the kids, right? It can be consumeristic. We need to tell them, listen. Well, okay, we can say this. I am Santa Claus, but I'm not like Santa Claus, okay? I, we, that's what we kind of tell our kids, right? Uh, I am Santa Claus in the fact that you are getting the gifts from us, but we're not like Santa Claus. We're not giving gifts only to good little boys and good little girls. These are gifts of grace. I know how awful you've been this year. Right? I, if I kept track of every spanking I gave this year, right? I know how disobedient you've been, but God gives good gifts to sinners of which I am the utmost and the foremost. And God is good. And we're going to give good gifts to our kids at the end of the year at Christmas time because God gave his greatest gift to sinners in Jesus. That's a gift of grace. Jesus comes to save sinners, not the righteous. Listen, common sense, common sense. Consumerism is bad, so let's not give, bah humbug. Let's not give good gifts at Christmas. Consumerism is bad, let's be cheap at Christmas time. Uncommon sense, the gospel approach. This is the one time of year where we should be the most generous because Jesus has been so generous with us in the incarnation. Listen to this quote again by Eugene Peterson in his book, uh, Run with the Horses. As I close, this is it. Our life is for others. That's the way creation works. Some of us try desperately to hold on to ourselves, to live for ourselves. We look so bedraggled, that's a great word, and pathetic doing it hanging on to the dead branch of a bank account for dear life, afraid to risk ourselves on the untried wings of giving. We don't think we can live generously because we have never tried. But the sooner we start, the better. For we're going to find out. For we're going to have to give up our lives finally. And the longer we wait, the less time we have for the soaring and swooping life of grace. That's what God calls us to the soaring and swooping life of grace. And sometimes we're holding on to the dead branch of our bank account. Found that moving. Now, this is what we're going to do this this morning. Um, First off, let me say this. The Lord's Supper, His body and His blood, we come, we partake of that. It's a living example of what Christ has done. It's a reminder of what Christ has done for us, uh, His gift to us, Right? What child is this? He was born in a manger. He was born to die, the hymn said, that we just sang. As we come, we take that re- with repentant hearts and with, and with thankful, grateful hearts for the gift that he's given us and the gift that literally keeps on giving with us. And what we're going to do today is uh, we're taking up a special offering Second time ever in the history of Sacred City Church. If you've ever been here, we don't, we don't do offering. This box is usually sitting in the back. We never pass plates. We never do that here. Um, but today we are, for the second, like I said, for the second time ever. And what, I want, what we're going to do is we're going to bring our gifts to Jesus. We're going to bring our gifts to his mission. And so what we're going to do is when we come down to take communion, you can drop, it, you can drop your gifts right here. Uh, there will be a basket in the back. Um, Rev has given me a lot of instructions here on how to do this. 
You can write your check. You can drop cash, put an envelope. There's envelopes laying at your feet. There's pens laying at your feet. Uh, you can text. How cool is that? You can text um, e-give plus your amount, CP, to that number there if you want to give there. Um, and then lastly, and this is what my wife and I are doing, um, we're, gonna, we're, we're using the card that's in front of you if you can't give today. And especially, listen, if you're a visitor here, this is not you. We're not talking... We, we love you guys. We don't want anything from you guys. We want to serve you guys. Uh, we're not asking, but for, if you're a member of Sacred City and you're a part of a missional community and you're on mission with us, this is for us, right? We want to see this church planted over here. So we want, if you're not giving today, we want you to use this commitment card and say, in the next six months, in the next six months, what can you give towards, over and above your offering, towards this church plant? All of this money is going towards church planting, okay? And so what can you, what can you give here? And, and f- please fill this out and then drop this in the basket here, okay? Drop this in the basket. So you can write your check, write your cash, text e-giving, and also uh, on the, if you give online normally, like 90%, I think, or something like that of our givers give online um, every week. There's a new button now. There's a normal button for your tithes, and now there's a new button that says moving the mission forward in 2015. So please do that. Fill out the card. Um, listen, if this is 20 bucks, it's 20 bucks. If it's 10 grand, it's 10 grand, right? It, the amount... The joyful response of our heart, not kinking the hose, right, is what matters. It's not the dollar amount that we write on here that matters. So that's, that corresponds that wherever we're at, according to our means, right, to give even beyond our means, as the apostle says. So please do that. This is a moment of worship, guys. This isn't just a business transaction. Listen, I, I hesitate to share this, but what time is it? Oh, I'm good. The, uh, in the Crusades, if you know anything about the Crusades, in the Crusades, the warriors are said to have been baptized with their swords out of water. Saying, God, you can have all of us, but not our swords. And many times in our culture, people want to come to Christ and be baptized with their wallets out of the water. God, I'll come and I'll get and I'll receive and I'll be blessed and this will help me psychologically, it'll help me mentally, help me be a better husband or a better wife, more well-rounded, but don't touch my money. And, and I'm just going to like, well, that's not the way it works. If he is Christ our king, everything we have is on loan from him. Everything we have. So let me pray. Father God, we thank you for giving this gracious gift to us. The gift of all gifts. The gift that all gifts have their meaning in and have their purpose in. That you, though rich, became poor. That every single human being is spiritually bankrupt. We cannot get right with God. Our filing cabinet is too full of bad deeds to ever be wiped clean. Except through the substitutionary death, life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he fulfilled the law of God perfectly. And then he died on a cross to take our place and to take our punishment so that we could have the riches of Christ, the wealth of a relationship with the living God, forgiveness, just a complete cleansing so that we could even have everything that you've given us that we know all good things come from you. God, the the good gifts of holiday music, the good gifts of coffee, the good gifts of families, the good gifts of everything that we have in our life right now, all of it flows through you. And I pray 
when our heart, I know when our hearts are affected by that grace, when they're aware of that grace, they don't just flow to us, they flow through us. So other people can experience the life-changing reality that we've experienced in the grace of God. Glory to God in the highest. May this offering and, and the, the heart response in your people, the worshipful, heart, joyous response to this offering, may it be pleasing to you. As we come to take the supper, may we take it with thankful hearts, knowing that as we eat it, Jesus, you go with us. No matter what sin we've committed, no matter what we've done, it's been washed under the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are going with us. We thank you for this. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.